Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. This week, scientists released data showing that carbon emissions in 2018 rose by nearly 3%, a full point more than last year. That report comes on the heels of two others that have brought current climate change findings into the public eye. All this at a time when dramatic natural events, historic wildfires, drought, and hurricanes have wreaked havoc across the country. On today's show, we dig into those reports and what they mean here in Southern Arizona. We'll talk with some of the report authors and climate experts at the University of Arizona. Diana Liverman is a Regents professor at the University of Arizona School of Geography and Development. She's also a former director of the University of Arizona's Institute of the Environment and helped write the most recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It showed that by as soon as 2030, the Earth's temperature could increase by almost three degrees since the start of the Industrial Revolution. That's a change that could lead to more catastrophic wildfires, droughts, and hurricanes, among other things. Those findings can seem dire, so I asked Diana Liverman, is it too late? No, it's not too late, and the report actually doesn't say it's too late. It gives us a choice. It says if we want to keep warming under 1.5 C, so that's 2.7 Fahrenheit, that we need to act within the next 12 years. So it gives us a window, and it also gives us a goal. If we were willing to let temperature warm even more, then we'd have a little bit longer to act. But we did give a sense of urgency, and we did give some very specific targets if we wanted to meet that goal. For those who aren't familiar with the report, let's talk about some of those targets. What are they and some of the bigger picture issues? So the IPCC report that was released um, few weeks ago. It was requested by the United Nations, and it was particularly requested by some of those countries that are very vulnerable, like the small island states, who are worried that if warming gets very significant, that they're actually going to lose their whole country. So prior to the report, the goal was keeping warming under two degrees centigrade. And they wanted to know how much more it would cost and how much more we'd save if we went to 1.5. So the goal of our report was to say, what are the impacts at 1.5? Are they much less than two? And then what would it take in terms of reducing emissions and other activities to keep us under that lower level of warming? So what would it take, uh, and I know it was a large report, but what would it take in the big picture to reduce to 1.5 instead of 2? Well, what we concluded is that to have a good chance of staying under 1.5, we'd have to cut our greenhouse gas emissions by half in the next 12 years and to get to actually carbon neutral by 2050. That doesn't mean we couldn't have no emissions in 2050. It would mean that we'd also have to have activities like growing forests or other technologies to take those greenhouse gases out of the air. So that's a pretty dramatic cut that we were looking at. That is a dramatic cut. And is half in such a short time frame even realistic? We suggested it was possible. But to be honest, the more likely scenario would be that we go through something we called overshoot, which is where we would eventually get to 1.5. But because we didn't cut emissions fast enough, we would go through higher temperature before coming back down. And that's when climate adaptation becomes very important, because the question is, how would we survive that peak temperature? 
President Trump recently told the Washington Post that he doesn't believe in climate change, and the problem is not the U.S. He puts the blame on other countries like China and Russia. How accurate is that? Well, it's not accurate that we don't bear some responsibility, both historically, because our economy has been based on fossil fuels for a long time. We have a lot of responsibility, but we're also a major greenhouse gas emitter. Now, China has overtaken us, but they don't have a lot of historical responsibility. But we also, one of the things I've said is we also have the innovation potential, the ability to come up with the technologies that could help the whole world reduce emissions. You mentioned innovation. There is an attitude uh, out on the street that science will save us. We don't have to worry about it. Maybe that's not the, the smartest way to look at it. No, I mean, science certainly plays a role, but we need a lot of investment in research and development, and government needs to help with that. But we also need behavioral change. But perhaps what we need more than anything else are changes in institutions, laws, markets. So one of the solutions, of course, that the report pointed to is the idea of a carbon tax. And in the US, at least, that seems to be the most likely bipartisan solution because there is quite a lot of support for that across the spectrum. With the president's attitude and the attitude of the administration as a whole, how does that hurt the innovation and the science? It does matter that the federal government is not paying a lot of attention right now and maybe dismissing climate. But there's so much action at state and local levels. A few weeks ago, I went to the California Climate Summit, where dozens and dozens of mayors and governors and private sector representatives were committing to reducing their emissions. And a colleague of mine at University of Maryland, Nate Haltman, actually calculated that even with no federal action, we would pretty much meet our Paris commitments. We committed to reduce our emissions by 26% at the big climate summit a few years ago. And we're almost there, even without the federal government taking action. We're talking with Diana Liverman, one of the authors of the most recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. How does climate change globally affect things like food supply and economy here in the U.S.? The National Climate Assessment, which focuses on the U.S., it actually had a chapter which for the first time looks at how the U.S. might be affected by climate change in the rest of the world. And in that chapter, we pointed out that even though we are a big food producer, about 50% of our food, especially certain foods, uh, comes from outside the US. And therefore, we're very vulnerable to climate change in other regions. So for example, our winter fresh fruit and vegetables that we all like to have all winter, we're very vulnerable to climate changes in Mexico or in Chile, and some of the places where things like coffee come from or chocolate, we could really be affected by changes outside our borders. Coffee and chocolate, the important things. Yes, and wine is also at risk. <laughs> Since you work so much at the international level, what is the perception amongst your colleagues and governments and private sector around the world of the U.S. right now as the federal government seems to be pulling back from a lot of the, the changes to slow down climate change? I think they're confused. They don't understand why the federal government or 
elected representatives don't trust science. They're also confused that quite a lot of the US population seems to be skeptical about climate change. You go to Europe and everybody thinks it's happening and the governments are taking it quite seriously. That's where I often raise the issue of the states and local governments and businesses that are taking climate change seriously in the US. So it's sort of don't give up on the US because there is a lot going on. It's just not what you hear about from Washington. We mentioned food and economy, but then we have other things, uh, more severe hurricanes, uh, more severe and more frequent uh, wildfires. Do those types of things have the ability to change public perception? Oh, I think so. The public does see more intense hurricanes, more intense wildfires, heat waves in particular. I mean, I think people in Arizona, they noticed how hot June was this year. So the public, I think, does perceive it. And the surveys that are done, we did one in Arizona a few years ago, and the majority of Arizonans are concerned about climate change, and they want the government to do something about it. So the public, I think, has more awareness than sometimes the political system. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. You're very welcome. That was the University of Arizona's Diana Liverman. She's one of the authors of the most recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This week we're talking about two climate change reports and some of what they mean for those of us living in southern Arizona. The fourth National Climate Assessment was released just a couple of weeks ago. The report is required by law and serves as the country's primary and final word on the state of knowledge of climate science. To get an explanation of the report, we talked with Kathy Jacobs. She's the director of the Center for Climate Adaptation Science and Solutions at UA and a faculty member in soil, water, and environmental science. She's helped write previous climate assessments. We also talked with Greg Garfin, an associate professor and associate extension specialist in the School of Natural Resources and Environment at UA. He's also deputy director for science translation and outreach at the Institute of the Environment. Garfin was the Southwest Region chapter leader on the most recent national climate assessment. I asked him to distill the report findings into a couple of big takeaways. To quote the former Secretary of Defense, Chuck Hagel, climate change is a threat multiplier. And what we're seeing in our region and what we can expect for the future is to see incidents that are nuisances now, you know, the occasional heat wave, the moderate drought become chronic problems. And that means that we need to prepare and manage in a uh, different sort of way. Another key uh, aspect is that there are connections across all of these different factors that we looked at, water and food systems and ecosystems and public health, for example. One of the key cases in point was the recent California drought where you tug a little bit on the water end of things and that goes down. Agriculture responds in a certain way. There were fires, risks to public health, and so on. So we have to look at this in a, a real integrated sort of way. And the third main message is that people in the region, institutions, organizations are already working quite a bit on climate change and there's much, much more to do. 
Kathy, many of the highlights of this report, higher temperatures, less water, more extremes, aren't necessarily news. These are things we, we've heard about before. What's new or newsworthy in this particular report? Well, I think it is really hitting the American public at a very different time politically than the last report did. And it's really interesting to me to see how how well it's being received. But in terms of the content, I didn't find any of it surprising. Um, they did focus quite a bit on economics, and there's a good reason for that. It seems to have gotten a lot of play in the media. There haven't been data available on the economics of climate change historically, and it's still a little thin. But I think the conclusions that this is a very costly thing for the American economy and that the impacts are really very substantial is a very important message and much stronger than was made in previous reports. Is there a risk that the public starts to suffer from information fatigue? Yes, 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 we know. Uh, and it just starts to bounce off as opposed to sink in? I think that's always a risk. But in the backdrop that we have right now, particularly, I think, the fires in California, but also what's happened with hurricanes along the South Coast and the kinds of extreme weather events people are experiencing, I, I do actually think that the American public is quite receptive still. And it's not as if the average citizen is reading the 1,600 pages. They're reading the headlines in the newspaper. Drops in the levels of both Lake Powell and Lake Mead uh, means increased risk of water shortages across much of the Southwest at a time of continuing drought. Negotiations are happening right now around drought contingency plans on the Colorado River. How important are these plans for our region? Very important. Climate change, again, sort of amplifies the risk. And so for these plans to basically um, be flexible, to take into account not just the traditional array of, um, of affected actors who have uh, water rights, but also the environment, because we've, uh, you know, we've learned that there are impacts to the environment that can then cascade into public health risks and so on. And, you know, fire is really the obvious one in the Southwest. You've brought up public health risks a couple of times. Beyond the obvious, maybe uh, something like a heat-related illness, are there more public health risks related to climate change in the Southwest? Sure. One that we don't often think of is the, the risks associated with these wildfires. Wildfires put lots of particulate out in the air, and for anybody who has uh, respiratory problems, or even people who don't have respiratory problems, I was in Sacramento this summer when there were fires going on just north of there, and I felt fatigued the whole time I was there, and I was, I'm in fine shape. So, you know, that one is uh, often underreported. I'd like to jump in on that. I have a daughter who's a graduate student at Berkeley, and for two whole weeks right before Thanksgiving, the air quality was at dangerous levels and actually got to the highest level of contaminants that it has ever gotten to. She was wearing a mask when she went out at all. They were told not to go out. So that is a really significant episode, and that was just Berkeley. I mean, think about the entire Bay Area. So enormous health impacts. I mean, she felt terrible. She had to stop while walking two blocks to the grocery store. 
And that's something we don't think of. Uh, again, when we hear climate change and health, we think of heat-related illnesses, especially here in the Southwest. There are major industries that are impacted, according to the report, uh, agriculture being one of them. Agriculture is very important in Arizona and much of the Southwest. Besides drought, how is agriculture being impacted uh, by climate change? What I'm more aware of are projected impacts. So as temperatures increase, there's greater risk of um, novel diseases coming in and, and novel pests coming into the region. And um, some of the crops, and I'll focus on a particular one, tree crops, so those nut crops, pistachios and pecans and walnuts and, uh, and others, have um, become major investments in Arizona, New Mexico, California, and what the projections show us is that as the temperatures increase, these trees need a certain amount of chill hours um, in order to produce buds and blossoms the following season. And some of these uh, crops will not be able to continue to be grown. And that's a, it's a huge investment for uh, tree crop farmers. I mean, that's a crop that you're expecting to pay dividends for a century or more. We're having a conversation with Kathy Jacobs and Greg Garfin from the University of Arizona. We're talking about climate change. Energy generation was featured in this report, especially the energy plants that use water to cool the plants. As temperatures go up, that becomes more and more of a problem. Maybe that's an area not all of us think about when it comes to climate change. Well, of course, generation of energy is one of the reasons we have climate change as a problem. And so it's all one big ball of wax. That being said, it's absolutely true that that cooling is a critical component of the way you generate electricity in most of this country. That's not true everywhere. But there's a lot of water required, and it takes more water when it's hot. And the actual generation is less efficient, and the transmission is less efficient. In addition, all kinds of other potential dangers for the grid associated with heat and even smoke. Yeah, and then again, going back to the California drought, I mean, because it's really kind of the poster child here of you know future droughts that, that we might experience. In the first year or second year of the drought, uh, California needed to shift from hydropower, because the water supplies were going down, to fossil fuels, and that ended up costing an extra, extra couple of billion dollars. And more, more fossil fuel use at the same time, which fuels the problem, and it becomes just, as, as Kathy said, a ball of wax. Let's look a little more locally. What are communities and local governments in the Southwest doing to adapt to these changes that we're seeing? For one thing, we've been working on managing water shortages for decades in Arizona. So some people, I think, at least originally thought, hey, we've got this. We have this very sophisticated groundwater management system. We've got a large central Arizona project allocation for Tucson. We've actually been recharging excess supplies for years and years. We're in good shape. And because we are so dependent on the Colorado River now, we are actually at much more significant jeopardy in terms of the whole water management system. And what I mean by that is we are already talking about going back to groundwater pumping in a way that we haven't been doing for quite some time because 
the Central Arizona project has been supplanting that. And our backup is the groundwater. Well, the groundwater is non-renewable. And so we're essentially pushing harder on a non-renewable resource that we made this huge investment to try to protect. So it has put our water supplies at risk. And locally, we have made lots of investments, but it turns out some of those investments may not have been quite as secure as people thought they were. I'd also say that water managers in the region, they've got a lot of tools in the toolkit that we can use to adapt. Many of them will be energy-intensive wastewater treatment or um, desalinating ocean or brackish groundwater, and they'll be very costly, too. So it's not like we don't have multiple solutions in addition to conserving water. But again, it means that we can't do business as usual. As Kathy pointed out, I think implicit in her remarks is that there's really less water around for a whole lot more demand given the increases in temperature. When it comes to what local governments or, in this case, state governments can do or communities the people can do, we had a question on the ballot in November about forcing utility companies to increase the amount of renewable energy they use to generate the electricity we use in our homes and offices. It failed. What does that say about what people believe is going on out there with climate change and the future? Is there a little bit of, it's not my problem. I won't be around by the time it's a problem. Well, I think that the way that came out was evidence of a very astute political campaign. I think that if everyone had the same fact basis from which to have made that decision and they understood the connection between renewable energy and climate change, which it's not really that clear that they do, we would have had a very different outcome. Honestly, when you look at local and national polls, usually citizens are saying that they're very much in favor of renewable energy. I think what they didn't like was being required, the portfolio requirement. And of course, they'd been told it was hugely more expensive, which is not an established fact. The reality is, the world is moving in that direction, and failure to get on board or be ahead of the curve actually is a big mistake. The report also addresses Native Americans. Lots of Native Americans in the Southwest, uh, largest population of Native Americans in the country, live in the Southwest. How are those groups adapting to climate change? Depending upon the specific tribe or Native nation, uh, some are developing uh, climate action plans or climate adaptation plans. Others are investing in um, renewable energy. And many of them are thinking about how they combine traditional knowledge of natural resource management, agriculture, wildlife management with uh, Western knowledge to come up with uh, some really robust ways to manage natural resources given these kinds of rapid changes that are projected for the future. That being said, it, it's quite clear that tribes are very strongly affected by climate change now. They live very close to the land. Natural resources are incredibly important to them. And in many cases, they're essentially landlocked 
by the fact that they have a reservation that has boundaries, which the rest of us don't have. And in many cases, their traditional cultural crops and so forth are available only in particular places. Those places may not any longer be able to produce those special crops and uh, traditional tools. And so this issue is huge from a cultural and economic perspective and also just from a human rights perspective. Many folks on reservations don't have running water or um, air conditioning access to the kinds of things we do to adapt. And so not only are they more likely to be affected by these changes, but they may have fewer tools available beyond the traditional knowledge, which, of course, is a, a huge asset. The Trump administration is stepping away from a lot of climate change things, such as reductions in greenhouse gases, uh, calling for an increase in the use of coal and other fossil fuels. Is it now up to local governments to pick up the ball since the federal government is stepping away? And can local governments do enough to offset the change in attitude in Washington? I actually worked in the Obama administration on adaptation policy as well as on the National Climate Assessment. And it's my perspective that the federal government does have a role. And the fact that they are not really stepping up to the plate right now is a problem. Yes, it has galvanized a lot of action across the entire United States. And in some ways even has galvanized action internationally that the Trump administration has not been really owning this problem. That being said, it's really inefficient to have every city and state operating, trying to find their own path individually. If we had both resources and the capacity for coordination at a national level, the rest of us who are trying to really pick up those pieces would have a much easier job actually getting adaptation done. Right now, so much energy is going into sort of overcoming this gap where that energy could be actually on the ground getting to much better outcomes, especially if there were resources, of which there are essentially none at the national scale. Thanks so much for sitting down with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. That was Greg Garfin and Kathy Jacobs, two UA scientists who have led the regional chapters of National Climate Assessment Reports. You can find links to the reports in the notes from today's show on our website. And that's the buzz for this week. A look ahead at next week. The Arizona Supreme Court recently ruled a huge housing development in Sierra Vista can go forward, even though the federal government and environmentalists question the developers' plans to supply drinking water. Find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.